Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at SitePen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I'm Anthony Ciccarello. I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Menza. Hello. And Tori Rice. I sometimes use computers well, properly. Not today, but sometimes. (laughs) And today we are speaking with Rob Palmer and Michael Molisani from Bloomberg. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello there. So would you two like to give a brief intro of who you are and what you do at Bloomberg? Sure. So I'm Rob Palmer. I'm the lead for the JavaScript infrastructure and tooling team. And I'm also one of four co-chairs of TC39. Yeah, I'm Michael. I've been working at Bloomberg for the past four years now or so, and I am working on bringing TypeScript to the application frameworks team. Great. So we're looking forward to discussing a little bit more of of all that infrastructure at at Bloomberg. Before we do, let's review the latest TypeScript update. There's some new features in TypeScript 1.4. Sam, would you like to give an overview? Sure, yeah. So in TypeScript 4.1, there is the introduction of a template literal string types that use the syntax use the same syntax as a template literal strings in JavaScript, but can now be used when you are defining types. So that is pretty useful. It's especially useful for their second feature that they added, which is a key remapping in map types. So this lets developers remap keys in map types with a new as clause. So with this new as clause, this will let developers use the template literal strings to create new property names based on old ones. So keys can also be filtered using the never type, which saves developers from having to use the extra omit helper type. So that'll be useful. And the last thing that they've released that is of note is recursive conditional types. So conditional types are now able to immediately reference themselves within their branches. So it makes it easier to write recursive types. So this is helpful when, for example, you want to write a type that will define a nested array. And that's it. Those are the of note 4.1 features. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, some of those, especially with some of the template strings, when I first heard that, I was a little confused as to what the use case was. But then when you look at it, even some of the simple things like setting up like on event methods and those kinds of remapping, it is really, really useful. So glad to see we're getting some more uh, powerful features out of TypeScript. All right. So To kick off our discussion, I wanted to start out with a little JavaScript poll. So in JavaScript, we have our normal primitive string number types, but there's also the capitalized string number and Boolean types, which can kind of throw people off that TypeScript types are also there. So my question is for Michael and Rob, have you ever used those object types? So in, in terms of using them as a, say, as a, as a constructor to create the boxed uh, items, I would say no. <laughs> but in, in terms of just using them as explicit coercions, that seems fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every now and then I'll use like the Boolean, not new Boolean, just Boolean paren as a way of getting something into a Boolean without having to. I don't personally like how 
double bang looks in terms of getting something to be a Boolean, but that's pretty much exclusively how I'll use any of those uppercase types. Yeah, that's pretty similar to our coding conventions usually at SitePen is in order to get that Boolean, wrapping it in the Boolean function, but not necessarily using that constructor so you don't have a type of object instead of type of Boolean. That's one thing to keep in mind when you're when you're using your your types, make sure your your Boolean string and and number types are lowercase. Diving into some of the stuff at Bloomberg, can you give a little overview of what the JavaScript infrastructure is and how you guys are starting to integrate TypeScript? Sure. So we've got a very large investment in JavaScript overall. One of the reasons is that we've been using it to build applications since around 2005. So that's JavaScript on the server side for writing the application layer of our main product, uh, which is the Bloomberg terminal. And that product itself has around 10,000 functions or applications. So this is a, a very big code base that's been around for, for a long time. And that originally, like way back when this started, this was based on embedding a spider monkey. And now more rec- recently, we've been inv- embedding Chromium and the V8 engine found inside of it. So this is really the core of both the client side and the server side application layer of the platform. So as a result, there are many, many projects. So all of that means that uh, we, we need to have tooling that can manage that and deal with that level of scale to make sure the projects uh, are all interoperating and meeting our, our standards. But what's the worst that could really happen? I mean, I you know the Bloomberg terminal. So okay, so you accidentally trade a few billion dollars to the wrong play, like whatever. You know, it's I don't see the. I, I think our, our customers may have something else to, to say about that. So. <laughs> at least that's not. At least that's not a thing that you have to worry about. So obviously, the accuracy of the data, the accuracy of calculations, really matters, and also the occasional exception in a front end app. Sometimes that doesn't really matter. But I think there was a, a small outage many years ago. And as a result, uh, the Bank of England decided to pause a bond sale. So uh, when our software goes wrong, uh, it kind of make, makes headlines. So as, as a result, there is a massive focus on accuracy and being resilient to, to errors. So TypeScript plays a, a very good role in assisting that. Yeah, so with this infrastructure, you guys are taking on a lot of the infrastructure yourself in terms of managing modules, managing the the actual JavaScript runtime and those kind of things. So how did you kind of come to the decision to pull in SpiderMonkey or Chromium V8 engine and manage that part yourselves? Well, I think certainly when, when this all kicked off uh, many years ago, that was really the, the only options on the table. It's, these were the, the days before Node.js existed, for example. But over time, we know that moving towards standards is the way to allow you to spend time on the things that really matter. So yeah, we're gradually iterating more and more towards standards compliance, towards using open source, and really trying to align with the fantastic ecosystem that has has risen over the last 15 years with both JavaScript and then TypeScript uh, taking over the world. So when did you guys get started moving to TypeScript? Sure, I can start that. 
So we had a lot of JavaScript code written. And in fact, the first version of TypeScript that we had at Bloomberg was kind of something that someone just added. We're like, oh, we're using JavaScript. TypeScript seems cool. Let's add TypeScript. And in the early days, it did provide a lot of benefit. There's, you know, there's benefit to having just like the rudimentary types and things, just making sure you know, like, oh, this function takes these and this function returns those, et cetera. But one thing that we didn't have from the early days was kind of an understanding of telling TypeScript how our projects were structured. So like for the server-side scripting, we have a very specific setup where individual code pages have different things exposed to them. And it can't just be one single project because file A can only see certain things that file A can see, file B can only see the things that file B is supposed to see. And TypeScript, if you just give them all of those files, it'll assume that it's, oh, this is like a web project or a node project or something like that. So we weren't quite sure how are we going to tell TypeScript, no, this is this is one of our projects. Yeah, I think you can you can think about it like having an application spread across separate iframes. So different parts of the application get to see a different global environment provided by JavaScript. And this is something that certainly earlier on, it was challenging to model the type of that environment using TypeScript. Right, so you have a certain amount of isolation in between modules, but it's not the more common common JS or other module types that is built into TypeScript. So you can have to communicate to the compiler how those things are structured. Yeah. So in the early days, we were really worried. We were like, okay, we can do something with the TypeScript compiler API. Maybe we'll do something crazy, be like, oh, we'll get this to work some way or another. But at the end of the day, we want to be able to have projects that people can like use VS code to edit. And so if we have some crazy compiler thing, like we don't want to have to write our own language server to have VS Code understand any of these projects. And for a while, we just didn't know, like, can we use vanilla TS configs and get this to work? And then it ended up being a really interesting process of trying a bunch of different strategies. We ended up going with project references and basically having a reference to every single one of these individual projects with their own compiler options and type definitions pulled in. Yeah, project references has turned out to be an amazing feature for scaling up the projects because the TypeScript compiler understands then the dependencies between these different parts of the project. So when you change one part, it knows which other parts to compile. And so you're not always compiling the world. So when you guys started this back in the day, I guess, whenever that was um, at this point, you mentioned that you're, I mean, you basically, you have your own JavaScript runtime and you're doing all these things because that was just what existed at the time. If you were to start this project over day one today, would you do anything different on that front? Or do you feel like the benefits are still outweighing the kind of cost of having to maintain all that and do all that and, and work around whatever issues you might find? I think we've been really successful at, at modernizing the code base. And so really, I, I think we're we're kind of on track to converge. So in many ways, some of the features that we've used and had in our code base have been there ahead of when they've turned up in the standard. So one example of this is top level await. So we've been using that for about eight years in our module environment. And that's something that's been very valuable. And it's only really come to, to JavaScript. Well, I think it's still technically a, a stage three proposal at the moment, but it will, it will, you know, it will soon land. It's available in Node and 
very soon in browsers as, as well. So I think I think we've done well at being ahead on some things, but really the value of the ecosystem is where it's it's all at. It's the fact that you know, you know, everyone know everyone has these has these skills, so it's good for good for hiring, and everyone's kind of like investing in this shared commons. So that's the thing you never really want to break away from. That's the that's the the prize to chase. Yeah. So Rob, you wrote this article on the Bloomberg Tech blog about some of this work, kind of the combination of working with the TypeScript team and also some of those the evolution of those standards. So can you talk a little bit about how things have moved closer and closer as as you've gone along and worked with the community? Sure. So I guess a lot of what we're we're doing internally mirrors what's happened in the the outside world in the sorry the outside world our world. <laughs> they don't let you leave. <laughs> He's chained to his desk right now, I think. <laughs> so for, for example, we used to use AMD style modules because you know if, if we're going to use something like top level await you need to use an asynchronous module definition but nowadays we're using es modules as the the format as as lots of people have been using for for a long time as an authoring format and hopefully going forwards more and more of us will be using as a as a deployable format as well in in node and and in browsers so yeah we're, we're always we try to to use to begin with tooling to bridge the gap in terms of where we need a feature that's not yet available in the platform. Well, maybe we'll use a build step. Maybe we'll use transpilation. But long term, it's nearly always better if these features can be pushed down into the platform. Like we've seen with top level weight, features can migrate when they become common and useful to everyone. They either become part of, say, the web platform or runtimes like Node and Deno, or if they're really useful to everyone, maybe push down into the JavaScript language itself. So it's then truly uh, universally available. How did you guys convince engineers to get on board with TypeScript to make such a massive change? I guess there we we were really, this, this converting from JavaScript to TypeScript, but adding types for our engineers is a very natural thing to do. Because the majority of the, the company is already familiar with typed languages like C++. And so I will have to admit, this conversion, this migration is almost on easy mode for us. Because this is what the majority of the, of, of the engineers already want. But there's definitely a part of it where we wanted to make sure that this conversion would be as easy as possible for people who have a lot of JavaScript. Because we do have a lot of JavaScript at Bloomberg. And if someone has a project with, you know, thousands of lines of code, the last thing we want to tell them is, okay, now spend a week, a month, get it all in TypeScript, and then you'll be converted. No one's going to do that. It's better to have a single file or whatever be converted as they have time and slowly, bit by bit, the project becomes a TypeScript project. So it's all been very opt-in. And certainly in the, the early days, it's very easy to identify the eager teams, the eager engineers that want to be to be early adopters, and so they jump in with the beta versions of what we make available. And the great thing about that is that they're also usually the the loud engineers that will tell us when something's not right or not, not to their liking. So we can then iterate on that that feedback. And likewise, they tend to be the louder engineers when presenting to the rest of the company, when engaging other engineers. So really, it's like it's the enthusiasm of that 
that then it infects more people and gets them curious and helps to allay any fears they may have. In fact, we had one team that was so enthusiastic that we had a, an internal event to try and promote more usage of, of TypeScript. We called it Get Typed. And one team made a fake infomercial that was saying like, you know, do you have a problem with your types, your software? I hope this video leaks because it's just <laughs> so funny. And it was a, a really great way of uh, in, in engaging and getting more, more engineers uh, curious. I think that's a key point, though, in that we talk all the time about open source projects having community and that community being so important to the success and all of the third-party add-ons that people make for a certain technology. But that's also true within a company as well in that you want the internal company to be able to have that excitement and that community around new technologies and be able to move the organization forward. Yes. So we have chat rooms and and, and ways for, for people to come together and share their experiences, to ask for help. And I'd have to say that this has definitely been the most enjoyable project and technology transition I've ever been involved with. And I think just recently, the proof is out there in the wild as well, that this is something people are opting into. There was a, a list of the most popular languages on GitHub. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm where they, they showed that TypeScript has now jumped all the way up to number four in the, in the charts, with JavaScript still at number one. Right. So yeah, adoption is high. So one of the challenges with TypeScript projects is managing those types between dependencies. And with your runtime, it seems like you guys have done a lot of work to manage those kind of more specifically a lot of people have contributed to things like definitely type definitions and those kind of things. But it sounds like at Bloomberg, you guys are all on one TypeScript version, correct? That's right. The tooling is upgraded en masse when we know that all the projects are ready. And we're able to assess that very easily because we have automation and uh, CI systems that can effectively build the entire world and tell us if we're, we're ready for that. Does it usually take long to resolve? Any issues that come up? Like how like how many issues do you bump into when you're when you run this and you figure out this project needs this update, this project needs that update? Like how long does it take? That is very dependent on which release of TypeScript it is. It's known that as you get a better type checker, it finds more errors even in code that you thought was previously good. So whenever the type checker gets better, it does mean that we then have to level up the code base and prepare it. For the next version. And overall, I'd have to say we're really pleased with how little breakage there is on a per release basis. So maybe it takes two to four weeks or so, in, in, at least in, in recent memory, for the TypeScript 4.1 upgrade was particularly, particularly easy. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all very, very manageable. And part of the reason is that the code base is already kept to very strict standards. So things like TypeScript strict mode, and even beyond that, the linting and the checking and the criteria we have for putting code into the system means that it's already in a, in a very engineered state, which generally, hopefully, should reduce the, is the issues that we bump into. It's also nice having TypeScript on a fairly regular release pattern. So we have the beta and then the full release. And what we've been trying to do is once it's in beta, we're adding it to our tools, 
figure out if anyone's adding anything, any breaking changes. Once it's been released as a package, people are starting to fix those. And then we consider it like formally released and supported by the time it lands in VS Code. Because the last thing we want is for someone to load up VS Code and be like, oh, why isn't this working? And it's really satisfying being able to test out an upcoming release of TypeScript against a large corpus of code. Uh, Because it means that we're likely to bump into cases that some projects never hit. And so what we've been trying to do is where where we find this ahead of time, for example, on the beta, we can then feed that back on the TypeScript repo, you know, report the issues. So then it's all there for for other people to discover. I know that Google have been doing this as well. There's been some really good reports there because they have a similar system for running against their huge code base as well. How many projects do you have that you've converted to TypeScript now? Like what? how large is this code base that you run this on? I'm not sure I'm going to complete numbers. I know I know we've said more than 200. I would say that it's now a lot more than that, but you can imagine. But really, you know, we have, after getting all this buy-in and, and adoption, we have now declared that TypeScript is the default way to write JavaScript in, in Bloomberg. So it's going to be a long time till we get to 100% migration, but this is the defined best practice going forwards. Yeah, it's awesome. So you guys are using TypeScript across network boundaries as well. So how do you guys define those interfaces? Are you using JavaScript on both the front end and back end? Or do you have some sort of conversion for other back end languages to develop those types? So we have a microservice architecture that goes through a lot of Bloomberg. For most of those services, the various types that are sent back and forth are actually defined in schemas. I think XML schemas for right now. And what we can do is when someone wants to send a request to one of these services, it's preferable if they are actually able to type it with what the actual request should look like. So we have a lot of tooling built around our service schemas in a way that we can generate type definitions that match the underlying like shape of the data. So at least for the microservices that aren't themselves written in JavaScript or TypeScript, we can still provide complete TypeScript support above and beyond what you'd normally get if you were just trying to call a a service written in another language. Yeah, that's great being able to take those schemas and convert those into types. That way, when you're consuming that, you know at a type level what that structure is going to be. And it gets even better with other parts of the system. We have this concept of deploying an application that consists of a client-side part and a server-side part, and that can all be deployed atomically. So it means that you don't really have to worry about versioning of that network interface because it's all all going out as one. And in that case, we've actually configured TypeScript so that when you're writing the server-side request receiver, and that code is typed using TypeScript, you then get live client-side checking that is all deriving from that using the TypeScript type system. So this is amazing because it means as you're adding things on the server side, perhaps to your, you know, almost at the bottom of your database, you're then seeing those auto completions show up instantly and the and also corresponding errors instantly on the client side portion of your code base as well. So there's there's not even any generation going on from a schema. This is pure schemaless and it's all it's all absolutely live. That sounds like a really fast feedback loop in terms of developer time being able to 
test that even before you have the application up and running. Yes, absolutely. It's a first-class developer experience. And I was really pleased to see an example of this. Gary Bernhardt had a, a video recently where he, sh- he showed the, the end-to-end all the way from the database going back to the client on one of his YouTube videos. Uh, and it, it was a really good illustration of how the types flowing end-to-end in your application is a really quick way and powerful way of delivering a feature and almost having the IDE guide you. It's like click, click, click as you bounce through the application to, to fill in the gaps. What was it like to be part of the ECMAScript standardization process? So this was a, a very, I think, very natural continuation for us. We've been in, investing in, in JavaScript for a long time now. And so joining TC39 and standardizing JavaScript lets us invest uh, even more into improving the commons. I think TC39 surprised me when I, when I first started attending at just how technical and how engineer-led it is. This is not a stuffy committee. These are all top-tier engineers. And what I really liked is that if there was any politics, it was not on display. All the debates are about the technical details, like what is right for the language, what is right for, for users. And it's been, been really good that as we've spent more, more time participating, we're now working on our own proposals. So for example, one of the upcoming ones, Record and Tuple, is being championed by two Bloomberg engineers, Robin Ricard and Rick Button. And so that's delivering immutable data structures into JavaScript. Yeah, I think that was kind of like, you know, before where you're able to contribute to TypeScript because you have such a massive code base. So you're able to contribute to like the TypeScript standardization process because you have, I don't know, like all of that knowledge at Bloomberg, I feel like you can, can utilize in, in helping this uh, committee. That's really cool, though, how like the just like a bunch of really, really bright engineers just get together and, and have a chat. Like that just must be a really cool like conversation to be part of just in general. Yeah. Oh, 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 yes. Attending is almost like going to a, a JavaScript conference in that it's, it's worth it just for the hallway chats, just, to, um, uh, just to, to hear what other engineers at large organizations are working on. And it's, it's very enjoyable. It's excellent. I think it's key that as you're going through and you're coming up with different use cases, you can kind of bring that to a group of another organization's and kind of talk that through and beat around the the use cases and the edge cases. And so being able to come to a technical committee will then say, what if it's a setter versus a declaration, all those different use cases really helps make the language stronger. And even though sometimes it feels like things like async await or top level await can take forever, it really does come out better for the community. Yes, it's, uh, well, it's an intentionally not an instant process. The process involves the four stages. And the, the idea there is to build incremental buy-in and to make sure that the language doesn't go uh, off course or become too complex. So with standards compliance, we've talked about it a little bit in terms of your team and not having to manage as much stuff, but what other advantages are to coming together between different organizations and developing those standards across teams? So I think that one of the things that we've really learned when 
deploying so many TypeScript projects, and in particular libraries where they're, they're interacting, is that we've learned that ecosystem coherence is really important because when you want to update a library, you want that to be as smooth and seamless as, as possible. So that means preserving compatibility. And we've discovered really, really strange edge cases. I will emphasize the, the edge here. In, for example, the TS configs that span these different projects. For example, you can find that if you have different strict mode settings on different projects, that can result in the types uh, being incompatible. So that's just that's one of the, the benefits of standardizing the tooling to ensure that these things are made compatible upfront by design. It sounds like a lot of the ways that you're using type definitions are kind of exposing some of the internal implementation details of how the TypeScript compiler develops or like spits out types. So are those kind of things that can become cleaned up in the TypeScript compiler or with like communicating with the Microsoft team? Or are there patterns that you guys are finding that that kind of help alleviate or eliminate some of those weird edge cases with type definitions? So we've had some edge cases with creating our TS configs, but fortunately, most of them have been in how it's kind of implemented end to end, like with VS Code and the TS server. We've actually found a few things that we're trying to get fixed. The first one was a while ago when we had, as I mentioned, like the project references. As it turned out, that like the TS server just wasn't recognizing project references and would assume this intrinsic project for any of the files that it found. Fortunately, there was already a kind of a workaround in progress and that kind of was merged in. But more recently, with our advanced TS configs, we had a lot of use of extends. So basically saying one TS config extends another one, that one even might extend another one, where we only have to like say our compiler options once, and then we can configure individual files and other configs. And we discovered that apparently the TypeScript server doesn't watch those extended files. So it's one of those things where it was handling it correctly, but well, when it's in watch mode, oh, we have to make sure we're getting everything up to date. I actually have a PR in with TypeScript right now. If anyone's curious, it's 41493. The declaration generation is one of the mysteries of, of, of TypeScript that we've, we've learned a lot more about. It's something that's really important because if you're writing your TypeScript and then publishing it, uh, you don't want to handwrite those declaration files. You, you want to rely on the compiler to generate high quality versions. And most of the time it does this really well. It's it's fully it's fully transparent. It's it's equivalent to the TypeScript that you've written. But sometimes <laughs> you find uh, again edge cases. For example, we found that sometimes types are copied into other declaration files. And for for a structural type system, this is legit. Because if something just needs to have two properties with a particular names, then it's fine to copy an interface or, or copy that shape across files. But in, in rare cases, this can lead to a real inflation of the size of that, that file. So we, we saw cases where files were becoming 100 times bigger because of this, this kind of behavior. And these are the weird extremities that you hit when you have a, a large set of projects and users, and it's 
I'm fairly sure there's a well-known rule that says if you've got sufficient number of users of something, they will explore every edge case, every behavior of the system. So yeah, this, this was one of them. And the fix turned out to be really easy, which is where we were using TypeScript's type keyword to declare types, we just needed to switch that over to use interface instead. And interfaces are never copied. Interfaces are referred to by their name, where they were declared. And by turning off this inlining, this copying behavior, suddenly everything is normal again. Everything is as you would expect. Yeah, that difference between interfaces and types is something that I know confuses a lot of newcomers to TypeScript. And what I would say is just anytime you can use interfaces, unless you're, I'll sometimes use types for a quick alias or something like that. But yeah, if you're defining an object shape, there's weird sorts of edge cases where types and interfaces have slight variations. Yes, you, you can't fully replace one with the other. There's a, there's a few small cases that one can do and other cases where you need the other. But I, I, yes, certainly I, I agree. If where you can choose, choose either, preferring interfaces is the way. And I think this was a bit surprising to some people because I think maybe from an ergonomic point of view, people feel more drawn towards type. So they like like to prefer that one. But in our experience, at least, um, interface uh, pays off. All right. So coming on the, the new year here. And with that, there's a new a new version of ECMAScript being ratified. And so, Rob, would you like to explain a little bit of how that process works and just like a, a quick reference to some of the stages and then when those become a new official version? Sure. So when a delegate in TC39 has an idea for a feature, they will introduce it to the committee and ask for stage one. And that really is confirming that this is a domain worth, a problem domain worth exploring. Then when they've done done the necessary work and come back for stage two, that's when usually there's a, a candidate solution in place. Then once all the details are worked out, that's when stage three is sought. And so during stage three, implementations start to ship these features. And one of the requirements to the exit criteria to get to stage four is that we have at least two implementations shipping. And amongst other requirements as well, for example, test 262 is the the conformance test suite that's used to validate the features. And so those tests must be in place as well. And and when this long checklist is completed, then the champions of that proposal will request stage four from the committee. And when that is accepted, that means it's now part of the language. And all of this can happen at any time during the year. This is not something we we save up for an annual event. So features can become part of the language at any time. And really, that's what people should be looking for is when a feature goes stage four. That's the assurance. And then on an annual cadence, the spec is snapshotted. We take a cut of the spec. And then that is declared to be the the yearly release. So... uh, Yes, 21 will be coming up. If you guys could get holiday card makers on board, I think you could do some sort of holiday release thing and make it, a, you know, like a mid-year. We, we don't really have a good mid-year holiday. 
we need like a Christmas in July type thing. And we c- I think we should really make that JavaScript. Like that's the only time new features come. It's like, you know, you open your presence and, you know, now you have all these new features. I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, you could take that to the committee <laughs> and you guys do what you got to do with it. I'm just, you know, I'm just an idea guy, you know. Okay, we'll definitely take that. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Be my champion, please. I did have a question about that because I've always kind of wondered about this. And even though I've been around people I could ask, never thought to ask, how exactly do you go from this idea of a feature that you'd want to implement to actually it being something that... Do do the people who come up with the the feature basically write their own version of that feature in, in the JavaScript runtime? It's kind of modified to actually do that and then test it out and say, oh, yeah, this is good. You know, how does it get from like, oh, I have this abstract idea to it's actually being shipped now? You know what I mean? Because like the idea has to be put into browsers. And there's notorious examples of, you know, the browser gets it wrong or the runtime doesn't do the thing quite right. So how did they do it right in the first place? You know, is that kind of how it's happening? You know, I've just never really thought too much about how that actually comes to be. So I guess it it all starts with finding a delegate from a, a member company to champion that idea but the, these ideas can come from, from anywhere. For example, TC39 has a discourse server where you can chat and propose things. And then everything gets tried out in multiple levels at multiple times during the stages process. So for example, people might try producing a, a Babel plugin. That's something that's, that's commonly done early on to, to try these things out and to get user feedback to see is this intuitive? And more and more, we're trying to rely on reliable sources of research and and user testing to feed back into that process. So yeah, I encourage everyone to go out there and try the features as early as possible so that you can go then onto the, the GitHub repos because every feature is on the TC39 org. They have their own repos. And then you can post on the issues there to pass on how you found it. Yeah, one of the the things that makes the process, I think, nice for users is that you have implementation happening during the process. And by the time it reaches stage four, it's it's often already landed in Chrome or Firefox. And so, Tori, we could definitely set up a holiday if, if you want to set up a, a holiday at the, at the company for that ECMAScript release. It just means our presence will have already already come. Yeah, I do kind of feel like you guys are peeking at the presence now that I'm finding out that you can just go to GitHub and find like, I mean, I I really feel like that's some insider (laughs) trading kind of thing going on. And I'm, (laughs) I'm now less excited about my holiday idea. But I think that, you know, script miss could be a thing. And I really feel like we should push this still. Honestly, I'd buy that. (laughs) It's all about the merge. (laughs) <laughs> it really is. I'm actually now plotting a whole new company just selling <laughs> script miss merch. So some of the uh, features that were shipped in JavaScript this year that will be part of that 2021 snapshot are string prototype replace all to do replace multiple times, which is just an ergonomic thing that seems small, but it's actually really useful. And also one of those edge cases that you might not think about Maybe I f- forgot to replace the second or third instance of those. Promise that any, which has been kind of talked about for a long time. Good to see that come to standardization. Weak refs, which are great for some advanced memory management cases and numeric separators, which have been in TypeScript for a long time. And if you're writing a, a test case where you're you're dealing with 
33 billion, 3 billion, 300 million. It's a little confusing if you don't have those numeric separators. So glad to see those things come to standardization and already be able to be used. So are there any features in JavaScript that you are hoping will reach stage four this coming year? I am really, really looking forward to Temporal. If you haven't seen it before, anyone who hasn't, check it out. If you're like me and you're someone who's had any issues with dates and times in JavaScript in the past, and I'm sure that's pretty much everyone who's done JavaScript development, (laughs) Temporal is for you. I think it's in stage three right now, and it's looking good to land, uh, to move up to stage four. I'm very excited about it. I mean, especially with 2020, we're already losing track of time. We don't need to also be losing track of time in JavaScript and TypeScript. Remember, uh, temporal, it's about time. So true. Rap, what would be your uh, pick for new feature? So I'm, I'm not sure whether it will get to stage four during next year, but the feature I mentioned, record and tuple for immutable data structures, that's probably the one that I'm most excited about because that allows some really cool things like composite map keys. Beyond that, I would say on the on the wish list, on things that I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see, um, and I say this from a very like personal point of view, no, nothing has been uh, set in stone at, at all. I think it would be amazing if we could just run TypeScript or something like it in the browser. So directly with perhaps no, no type checking, but just the ability to run it and have the browser ignore the type annotations. I think that could that could really help us get back to a time when you could just run your code in the browser and we didn't necessarily need to go through a build step. Yeah, that balance of having great tooling for the real detail that we need, but also the ability to just run things, play around with it and experiment. And we could always just merge a TypeScript into, <laughs> into JavaScript. So they're just one. I mean, we all we all prefer TypeScript anyway over JavaScript, so... You could just go with TypeScript. TypeScript is the new JavaScript. That would be a great script mispresent next year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank Michael and Rob for joining us on this episode of the TypeScript podcast. We will definitely link to Rob's blog post in the show notes. And let's see, do we have anything? Oh, what was that? Uh, what was that graphic about with the banana and the <laughs> TNT? Yes, we do need a story on the. <laughs> the graphics of the blog post. So these graphics were produced by a, by a Bloomberg engineer. I gave him the brief. I said, uh, we want to make a big splash with TypeScript. And he came back with the exploding banana. And it was amazing. It was an instant hit. I'm not sure that there was much of an explanation for it. When we sent the, the article over to the TypeScript team, uh, I heard back from, uh, I think, Daniel, and he said he discussed it with Anders. And they were asking, what does the banana mean? Does it mean that TypeScript is going to explode and destroy things? It's like, no, 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 no. Not, it's, um, it means whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> it's a script, Miss Banana. Everyone right. knows that. It's of the course. script, Miss exactly. Banana. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think this, this is all starting to come together, you guys. I, I'm really feeling this script, Miss thing. Mistletoe, bananas. It's, it's the same. All right. Well, thank you, Rob and Michael. And we'll be back next time with another episode of the Talk Soup Podcast. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of TalkScript. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter. We record new episodes every month. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript. We hope you'll call back next time. We got a good thing going on. We got a good thing.